Good morning. Thank you so much for welcoming uh, me and my family to church this morning. It's a privilege to be with you and a greater privilege to get to read and meditate on God's Word together. So if you're able, please stand as we read God's Word from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. You can turn there in your Bible, or I think there's also a cream-colored sheet that has the Scripture on it. Uh, Please follow along, listen, and prayerfully hear God's Word to us this morning. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Speaking of Jesus... We read, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Well, we're past the halfway point for summertime, which means in Dallas that it is ridiculously hot outside. And it's also uh, probably means that each of us has consumed more than average, consumed a fair number of stories this summer, whether it's a summer blockbuster movie in the theaters, whether it's a book that's been assigned to you for summer reading that maybe you haven't started yet, whether it's a podcast or an audio book that you've listened to on a long road trip or plane trip, whether it's a summer musical at Fair Park, a novel on the beach, many of us have consumed stories this summer. Uh, there's a reason for this, of course. It's not just the, the entertainment industry or the publishing industry trying to earn money, but we as human beings hunger for and crave and love good stories. Uh, we, we believe they, they shape our lives in certain ways. And the parables of Jesus, this being one of them this morning, the parables of Jesus can hang with the best of well-told stories. Whether it's a great novel or a great film uh, or a great uh, well-told story, Jesus' parables are amazing. And they accomplish something that's a little bit different than most stories that we take in. Jesus' parables are not meant merely for information, not merely meant for entertainment, not merely meant to be consumed, but meant to be meditated on, meant to circle back and repeat themselves in our heads and in our hearts, that we would meditate on them and and, and wrestle with what they teach us because they address our hearts. Each one of these parables, and especially the one before us this morning, it addresses our hearts, it addresses our attitudes, our beliefs, our emotions, our relationships. It addresses the way we pray and the way we conceive of our relationship to God. 
It changes the way we think about the world. And so part of my hope and prayer this morning is that this, this story, this parable, would not only be heard and thought about for a few minutes now, but that it would dwell in you, uh, that it would bounce around in the walls of your heart and your mind this week, uh, according to God's Spirit at work in us. In this story, there's three ways Jesus addresses our hearts, three ways that he's seeking to, to powerfully tell us something and change something in us. In this parable, he exposes our pride, he exalts humility, and he extends mercy. He exalts, exposes pride, exalts humility, and extends mercy. First, this, in the story, Jesus begins by exposing the problem of pride. He exposes it in the Pharisee. He exposes it uh, in us as well. Now, Jesus' original audience, when Jesus began to tell this story, and he gets to the part very early on where a Pharisee enters the temple court, his listeners would have perked up and paid attention to what they would expect to hear from this Pharisee, what they expect to see in this Pharisee. Today, we use that term Pharisee in a derogatory way. But for Jesus' first listeners, they would have been leaning in, expecting to hear something good about this Pharisee, expecting to see a model in this Pharisee of how they should think and believe and live. This Pharisee was an elite, respected Jew. He wasn't like other men. Just like his prayer says, he was not like other men. And so we can... Imagine Jesus' audience nodding in agreement as the Pharisee prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Those people would have said, yes, you are not like them, and we're thankful. But of course, we know from this parable, we know from other passages in the Gospels when Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and his relationship to Jewish leadership in general, we know that uh, Jesus doesn't uh, give us this story, doesn't talk about this Pharisee's prayer as a positive example, but a negative one. Uh, by recording this prayer, Jesus is exposing this Pharisee's pride, the sin of his pride. This prayer has been given an appearance of a prayer of thanksgiving to God, but in reality, it's a brash display of judgmentalism and arrogance. And Jesus uses the Pharisees' prayer to expose the problem of pride. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes an entire chapter about pride. And he says this uh, at the opening of the chapter. He says, There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault of which we are more unconscious in ourselves. No fault that makes a man more unpopular than pride. No fault that we fail to see in ourselves so regularly as pride. We can see this problem of pride and this failure to see it in ourselves uh, as we look at the world around us. Just this past week, on, on Thursday or Friday it was, the Washington Post published an article that reported that scores are trending higher on the NPI. The NPI, the Narcissistic Personality Inventory, Given to college freshmen annually for the past 35 or 40 years, the, the narcissistic personality inventory is a test that, given by psychologists, and students are increasingly answering yes to questions like, 
I am an extraordinary person. And I am more capable than other people. And everybody likes to hear my stories. And if I ruled the world, it would be a better place. Scores are trending upwards towards positive answers to those questions in our culture. Certainly pride is a universal and timeless uh, vice for humanity, but perhaps in our culture the the trend is more and more towards that self-promotion, whether it's social media, whether it's simply the delusion of our own hearts. It's a problem and we live in it. It's the air we breathe and the water we drink And so it's hard to see it in ourselves. And so Jesus gives us a parable like this as a mirror to reflect not only the the Pharisees' pride, but as a mirror to reflect our pride, the things that we might have in common with the Pharisee. Here's a few. What do we see in this Pharisee's pride that we might see in our own? First, the Pharisee's pride is rooted in comparison. It's rooted in comparing himself to someone else. Look at verse 11 when he says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I thank you that I'm not like other men. Immediately, this Pharisee is thanking God for something that's true of him, not just in general, but as he compares himself to other people. Does it ring a bell? Have you ever noticed that however weird or unsuccessful or... uh, Immoral we may be, we human beings are experts, highly skilled experts in finding reasons that we are better than other people. It's amazing. Comparison, it's said comparison is the enemy of contentedness. Well, comparison also fuels pride, fuels our pride. So perhaps we can see a bit of that in ourselves this morning as we think about how we compare ourselves to other people. In this parable also, we see the Pharisee struggle with pride that is spiritual in nature. It's not just a pride in general of his, his wealth or his position or status. It's a spiritual pride. It's a pride about spiritual merit, about how good or pleasing a person is to God. And again, many of us can relate. Um, I, I'm sure that your church is nothing like mine. But in my church, sometimes people, not me, of course, but people might take pride in uh, where they go to church or which small group or Sunday school class that they are a part of, about their devotional life, about which mission trip they went on, about if they're an elder or a deacon or a teacher or a ministry leader, if they have some position, maybe about even what they wear to church. Maybe about whether their children are walking with the Lord or not. There's all kinds of sources for us of ways in which we might puff ourselves up or compare ourselves and look down on others of who we believe we are in God's sight as compared to other people. Third, the Pharisee, in his pride, we see his pride reach its peak in the Pharisee's sheer contempt for the tax collector. This wasn't the case of the Pharisee simply believing that he was better than someone else. But the Pharisee, his pride actually caused him to to commit the sin of contempt, of looking down, of disparaging against the tax collector. He was so brazen in his contempt 
that he verbalized it out loud in the presence of the tax collector, addressing it to God. God, I thank you that I am not like this other man standing a few yards away from me. It's incredible. It's incredible to see an example of such gross spiritual pride. And so what's our response to that? What's our response when we see this Pharisee committing such gross spiritual pride, such obvious sin of being proud? Well, we might say something, if you're like me, you might say something like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, especially like this Pharisee. Right? Ironic as it is, C.S. Lewis continues in his chapter on mere Christianity and says this, pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. And so all of us are wrapped in, sucked into this vortex because of our own sinful hearts, because of the, the way of our culture, because of the temptation of the devil sucked into this vortex of pride, sometimes that we feel there is no escape for. So Jesus exposes pride in this passage. He also exalts humility. The point of this passage is not simply to to, to look negatively upon this Pharisee, to point out a problem, but to give a way forward. What's the counterexample? What's the solution? What's the, the positive in this narrative? Well, it's a tax collector. And Jesus describing this tax collector, and how he embodies humility in his prayer and life. So Jesus exalts humility. Verses 13 and 14, we see this especially in the tax collector's prayer. Now, to a certain degree, to a certain degree, our world uh, would, would be with Jesus to this point, looking down upon the proud and favoring the humble. This is why in the world of superheroes, Batman is always more popular than Iron Man. Bruce Wayne is just a little more humble, a little more reserved than Tony Stark. This is why kids, if you've seen the Cars movies, this is why we don't like Lightning McQueen when he first appears because he's proud and arrogant and brash. But then he has this this change of heart, realizing his own place and his own humility. This is why in sports we like... We find, always find reasons to hate players like LeBron James or Tom Brady because they just seem arrogant. They just seem proud, even if we don't know them. But like the Pharisees' pride was of a unique kind, the tax collector's humility is of a unique kind. It's not just a personality trait. It's not just something that we observe or happen to, to sense out in someone, but The tax collector's humility is spiritual in nature. It's not just a mannerism. It's not just a personality trait. It's a deep humility before God. A deep and thorough humility before God. I said a moment ago that comparison fuels pride. Well, that's the case if you're comparing yourself to other people. But comparison can also promote humility if you're comparing yourself to God. You think about passages in the Bible where people have been in God's presence, and by virtue of standing in God's presence, they have immediately felt that 
that contrast between who God is and who they are. You think of passages like Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve first sin and God is walking and looking for them in the garden and they're ashamed and they're hiding because they know they are undeserving. They're guilty. There's a difference between who God is in his holiness is and who they are. You see it in a passage like Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is caught up into this vision of God's throne room and he sees God in all of his holiness. And what are the next words out of Isaiah's mouth after he beholds this holy God? Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. You think about it in 1 John. 1 John begins by describing God as a being in whom there is purity and in whom there is no darkness at all, but only light. And then John says, and we shouldn't deceive ourselves. We are impure. We are dark. And that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. It's an amazing passage. How does the tax collector reflect that kind of humility? How does he reflect this spiritual, this deep spiritual humility? Well, he prays. Unlike the Pharisees' prayer, which is more directed to other people, it seems, the tax collector's prayer is immediately directed at God, and he really prays. He's praying to God in the desperate hope that God might hear him and that God might be merciful. Notice how the tax collector, he doesn't merely verbalize his prayer, but he embodies it. He embodies the content of his prayer. How does he do that? Kids, look down at your Bible. Look down at verse 13. Notice and look how... Jesus describes how this tax collector prayed. What did he do with his eyes and his hands? Where was he standing? How does he embody this prayer? Well, he's standing, first of all, his body in general. He's standing far off. He's not standing in the central place of prayer. He's standing almost as if it were back in the corner, feeling unworthy to be seen and enter in more immediately into God's presence. What is he doing with his eyes? He's looking down. What's he doing with his hands? He's beating his breast. Signs of deep unworthiness. A deep level and a deep sense of his own sin. A deep and physical pleading with God for mercy. Now your church like mine every week includes... Uh, a, a confession of sin, I believe, in your service. We prayed earlier together a confession of sin. Well, those prayers are good. It's a good and faithful thing to do in God's word. It's biblical to confess your sins. But if our confession is only with our mouths, it's not worth very much. In our times of confession, if we are not also leaning towards and beginning to think about and praying for the Holy Spirit to teach us what does it mean for me to embody this confession? What does it mean for me to to turn away from the sin I'm thinking about as I read those words? How am I going to walk in paths of righteousness for God's sake now that I've prayed this prayer and asked God's forgiveness and asked him to lead me in that way? Perhaps even now you can think about it. What was I, what sin was the Holy Spirit 
bringing up in my heart or in my mind during that prayer? Or how was I distracted and not even thinking of it? How can I go back to that prayer of confession? And how can I truly, faithfully, really embody the faith I profess? Embody the the sin I confess? Embody a true, deep, humble repentance? This uh, embodiment uh, teaches us so much. We see it just in simple, physical ways. But our body language, our behavior, as First John would teach us also, and James would teach us, they authenticate the sincerity of our confession. God is after a humility that is so complete that it's actually genuine. So genuine that it actually leads to exaltation. And that's how Jesus ends the story In verse 14, he talks about this pattern, not just of turning away from pride and pursuing humility, but how humility leads to exaltation. Verse 14, at the end, Jesus uses this phrase. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In the Gospel of Luke, this is the third time Jesus has said this phrase, comparing comparing. Uh, the pursuit of pride leading to humility, and the pursuit of humility leading to exaltation. It's the third time Jesus has, has said it, and the second time Jesus has said this and taught this in a parable, meaning we're slow to learn. And we need good stories like this that, that end at this conclusion, to teach us this pattern, this template. Now, Jesus isn't simply repeating this to, to cure our pride or commend our humility. He's repeating this phrase because he's teaching us salvation. Salvation comes on the path of humility. It comes on the path of humility. Not that salvation is earned by our humility, but on the road of humility is where we encounter the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is proclaiming that it is only by the path of humility that we encounter the wonders of his mercy. The song we sang earlier, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, is a hymn that embodies that, beginning with confession, moving towards then the grace and streams unceasing of mercy that are found in Jesus. And so it's, by the pathway of humility that we encounter the work of Jesus for us, that we, that we find that Jesus is one that to the humble extends mercy. And that's the third thing we see in the passage is that Jesus extends mercy. He's not simply casting judgment. He's not simply removed from these two men, but he is moving in and he's going to extend mercy to one of them. The great and dramatic climax of this parable is about Jesus Extending mercy. It's surprising who the mercy goes to, right? You read verse 14, and you might, Jesus' original audience might think that if Jesus is going to commend one person, it's the Pharisee, and Jesus instead says, I tell you, this man, speaking of the tax collector, this man, this humble man, this breast beating man, this man who couldn't even look up to heaven as Jesus prayed or the Pharisee prayed, this man went down to his house 
justified. And he adds, rather than the other. Meaning, this other man wasn't justified, and this one, this tax collector, was. I mentioned Jesus as a master of well-told stories. And this is the surprise element. Even though we've already read it and might expect it in a way these days, this is the surprise element of the story. And surprising not only because of who receives mercy and justification, but of what they receive. What did the tax collector pray for? What did he beat his breast praying for? God be merciful to me, a sinner. What did God give him? He gave him something more than mercy. He gave him far more than mercy. Mercy is the restraint of God's judgment against sin. Mercy is encountered when you have done wrong and you deserve punishment and that, that punishment is slow to come or doesn't come at all. This is when you have cheated on a test or skipped school and the principal doesn't suspend you. Just says, don't do it again. This is kids when you've done wrong at home and your parents restrain themselves from disciplining you. Mercy is the restraint of God's punishment, the restraint of God's justice, but the tax collector got mercy and more. He got far more than mercy. What did he get? He got justification. What's justification? It's this big, fancy theological word that Presbyterians like to use, right? It means that that tax collector, rather than just God not punishing him, that tax collector was received as a child of God, was viewed in God's sight as being right and good and beloved and perfect. Was he those things? No. Not in himself. He was, as he said, a sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's who he is, but God received him. God welcomed him, God approved him as child of God, perfect and good and right and loved. Why? This parable doesn't spell it all out, but we know from Scripture, we know from the rest of the Gospel, this tax collector is able to be justified, able to be received into God's family because of the work of Jesus Christ alone. Not because of his humility. He's not earning his justification by his humility. He's receiving as a free gift, the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of becoming a child of God with all its rights and privileges because of the work of Jesus Christ. Our longing for mercy has been satisfied. It's been satisfied in Jesus Christ. We read from Philippians chapter 2 earlier in our confession of faith about how Jesus, despite our sin, despite our rebellion, he humbled himself. He left the rights and privileges of heaven. He left all of that to come to earth as a man, to be like us, to enter our world, to suffer its pains and temptations and sorrows, and to go to the cross for us. So that we, receiving the good news of the gospel, repenting of our sins, we would be received with all the status that Christ shares. 
with all the privileges, all of the acceptance, all of the the holiness and righteousness that the Lord Jesus owns in himself. For on the cross, Jesus bore all of our sin. In the resurrection, sin and death are defeated, and for those who trust in Christ, all of Christ's righteousness, all of Christ's standing, all of Christ's joy and goodness and acceptance is ours, freely. We receive mercy, we receive more, we receive the record of Jesus Christ himself. We see this principle of receiving more than mercy. We see it in another famous parable. Can you think of it? A parable of someone who has sinned and coming to repentance not only receives the forgiveness of his father, but receives a celebration as a son. The parable of the prodigal son. This man, this, this unfaithful son who goes off, squanders his inheritance, comes home on that depleted, spiritually, physically, emotionally depleted state, walking, struggling home, hoping that his father just might receive him back into the household just for a, just for a meal and a job. And what does his father do when he sees his son walking home? Knowing almost in advance the, the son's state of repentance, the father runs, hugs, kisses, gives a gift in a ring, and throws a party. To the older son, it's nonsense. To most of us, it seems at odds. But the lesson the parable is teaching is that for those who humble themselves and repent and come to the Father in repentance by faith in Jesus Christ, there is more than mercy. There is more than the restraint of God's punishment. There is life and life abundant. So many of us live like with, with the worldview and the heart attitude of this Pharisee, just, just hoping that if we are good enough, if having repented of our sins, that we can keep making enough progress in our Christian life to just restrain God's judgment and try to keep his favor. We live as if we're walking on eggshells before God's holy presence, nervous that we might do or say or believe the wrong thing. But God's mercy to us, God's acceptance of us is perfect. It's permanent. If you are in Christ, you are in him securely and forever. And that's the thing. That receiving of of mercy and more is the thing that changes our hearts to actually want to love and obey and serve God. It's a band named Mumford and Sons. I like to listen to, and they sing this song, they sing this lyric in one of their songs. It says, kind of hearkening back to that story of the prodigal son, it says, it seems that all my bridges have been burned. And you tell me that's exactly how this grace thing works. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with a restart. It's that welcome of the Father. It's that going down to your house justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the thing for us as a church, as families, as individual believers that propels us to be witnesses and heralds and stewards of the good news of the gospel. That's the thing that gives us joy that propels us to faithfulness and continually and regularly propels us to repentance, to continually be living in that state of 
God be merciful to me, a sinner. To continually sing, great father of mercies, thy goodness I own in the covenant love of thy crucified son. All praise to the spirit whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness mine. Do you find yourself like the tax collector today? Perhaps with fresh awareness of your own sin. Fresh awareness that you do not deserve God's mercy and pardon and righteousness. Somehow feeling that you don't belong in in this space. Belong in God's presence and prayer. If you feel that, know God's acceptance and love and forgiveness is yours simply by repenting and believing in Jesus. Maybe you find yourself more like the Pharisee, though. Maybe you find yourself as someone who really struggles with that spiritual pride, looking to yourself for hope, looking down with to others in contempt. I have good news for you, too, because this parable is actually mostly for you. Remember verse 9? Who did Jesus tell this parable to? To those who trusted in themselves and treated others with contempt. The good news of the gospel is for you also. For you who are struggling with pride, for you who are struggling to shake those chains of sin, whether it's pride or another, the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you. And the call of repentance And trust in Jesus is the same. And the answer of God's forgiveness and love is the same. Maybe you find yourself oscillating between the tax collector and the Pharisee. That that multiple personality thing that we sometimes feel as Christians. Sometimes embracing with our hearts and in our minds and in our bodies the, the confession of the tax collector. And sometimes the very next moment looking to ourselves with pride because we've embraced this tax collector spirit. Maybe you find yourself oscillating between the two and fighting that gravitational pull towards being a Pharisee and that gravitational pull away from resting completely in your status as a son and daughter of the king. If that's you, again, repent, believe, and seek that most basic, that most primary characteristic of the believer that Jesus taught us in the Beatitudes that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. May we walk in that poverty of spirit. May we live and serve and obey and go to the world with joy in that same poverty of spirit. John Newton uh, uh, described uh, the possibility of, uh, of heaven in this way. We'll close with this. He says... If I ever reach heaven, I expect to find there three wonders. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had thought to meet there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. May that spirit in Christ be ours as a church today.